So, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 3 today, if you want to open up in your Bibles. Wherein we find that one person who changes his mind can affect an entire nation for good. Do you think that would be possible? It's a turning point when a person says, I am genuinely wrong. I'm going the wrong way. And then that person changes their mind. Now that's repentance. That's what happens when you repent. I don't know if you are so familiar with the word. I mean, we use it a lot. But what it means is, I realized I was wrong, so I changed my mind. And then, because I changed my mind, I changed my life, doing different things now. And you know, that's the good news about Jesus, is that he gives new life and new direction by repentance. Now the result of repentance is forgiveness. When you repent, God forgives you. But that forgiveness goes beyond you to others. It's supposed to go everywhere. Now, what if you don't think you're wrong? What if you don't change your mind? What if you don't repent? Well, we're going to see it today. Hatred, bitterness, revenge, Outrage, mistrust, and cursing. Unforgiveness. So it is in our best interest to repent and to forgive. Are you interested? I'm going to read the first verse here in 2 Samuel 3. Look what it says. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Now this verse properly belongs to the preceding chapter. And we've been seeing that there's a conflict between the northern kingdom Israel and Judah. And here's what happened. The house of Saul, that means Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. The real power behind Ishbosheth is Abner, Saul's commander of his armies. And after that big fiasco on Mount Gilboa, Ishbosheth. Uh, Abner takes Ishbosheth. We're going to do it this morning, folks. And he says, You're going to be king now. And he's put all of his energy, Abner has, into organizing Israel under Ishbosheth. And so far, so good. Abner's done it. But then he tried subduing the house 
of David. And he's king over the southern tribe of Judah. And Abner finds that he's growing weaker and weaker. He's not making any progress like he was before. And in fact, David is growing stronger and stronger. Abner's plans are not working out. And meanwhile, David's family is growing. Verse two, sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrium, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. So David, along with Ahinoam and Abigail, marries four more wives during the seven years and six months that he ruled in Hebron over Judah. And Meacha, she's the daughter of the king of Geshur. That is a, a small Aramean, Syrian nation that is northeast of Israel. And it seems like it was a political alliance, marriage, the kind where you intermarry and therefore now because my son-in-law is my son-in-law, I don't attack him. He doesn't attack me. So it's a thing for security and peace. And the rest of these women we really don't know anything about. But he married them. And then he has six sons. Now we'll learn more about them when they come into the story. This is not a time to talk about polygamy. It's not the big deal today, okay? But we're gonna store that one away for future reference. Just for the moment, don't do it. It's not a good idea. Moving right along. Verse six. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. So Rishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel, over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So here's Abner strengthening himself in the house of Saul. And what that means is he is consolidating his power, his authority. Now, he had a lot to begin with, right? 
because he took Ishbosheth and said, You're going to be king. And he's gone around and done all this organizing and domination and force of character and all that kind of thing. And then after all this that he's doing for Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth turns around and accuses. Abner of gross treason, unfaithfulness, because it's, it's around this sleeping with Saul's concubine. And you think, well, what's the big deal here? But what this means is, if Abner did that, that would be making a statement that he is claiming her for his own. And to do that would be also to be making a claim on the kingship as well. And Ishbosheth might be thinking, well, he's already big stuff. He's already the mover and the shaker in Israel. What more can he have but the kingdom? Is he making a move on me? Now, we don't even know if he really did that. We never find out. And it, maybe he did, and maybe he didn't, and Ishbosheth kind of assumes, well, <laughs> what more else do you want? You, can, you could take anything. So I was trying to think about this. Did he do it or didn't he? And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, Abner's reaction kind of shows that he didn't. Because Abner is outraged. This is that turning point in Abner's life when he just thinks, what in the world am I doing? He snaps. And he says, in effect, what do you think I'm doing here? Do I act like I'm an idiot from the tribe of Judah? Because he says, I'm showing loyalty to the house of Saul. And that word loyalty is the Hebrew word chesed. And that means strong, faithful, covenant love. And he says, I didn't turn you over to David so he could wipe you out. Because this is how transition happens with kings in the world. The new dynasty comes in and kills everybody connected with the old dynasty who might have a claim to the throne. So you go in and you exterminate family, friends, connections, anybody, and then there are no contests for who's king, and you rule in peace. And Abner is thinking, you know what? Here I've been working so that you do not fall into the hands of David. And today, you're accusing me of treason and disloyalty. And he could well be thinking at this point, 
I'm even stupider than you are for propping up this government. Who knows? It's like all of a sudden he's thinking, what am I doing? Because here I reorganized Israel, but I'm not making any headway against David. And this is the weirdest thing. Abner was doing great with Israel. All the tribes are there. But then he starts trying to take in Judah, and it's like nothing's working. What's going on? And the more he tries, the weaker he gets, the stronger that David gets, and Abner's going, what is this? And I think that he's thinking, you know what? I know about David. God swore that he would be king. I can't fight God. I seem to be fighting God and losing. This does not make sense. And finally, it just comes to a head. Disloyalty. Okay. And he swears by God to turn the kingdom over to David. Now this is a huge change of mind, don't you think? Because he's the one who says, this is what we're going to do. You're going to be king. You guys get under him, all this stuff. And then he thinks, no. From here on in, I'm going to work for David. I'm going to quit fighting against God. I'm going to do everything I can to make David king, as God said. Now this is a change of mind. This is repentance. And because Abner believes that David ought to be king of Israel, then he does something about it. Everything he can do. Verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I'll make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Bahirim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then... Do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, 
I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So Abner, there in verse 12, sends messengers to make contact with David and say, I want to work for you. I want to submit to you. I want to make a covenant with you so that you are going to be my king. And David says, okay, let's do this, but first, I want my wife back. Now, he was married to her, Saul's daughter, Michal. And he lost her when he had to run from Saul because Saul was trying to kill him. And while David was fleeing from Saul, eventually Saul married his daughter off to some other guy. And you know, that's, that's not right, what he did. Through Michal, David has a legitimate claim on the throne. And he wants to set this right. So he says, this is my condition. Let's see if you want to work with me. And so he writes to Ishbosheth, but you notice Abner's the one that actually pulls this off and goes and gets her and says, you know what, you need to go home now to her other husband. It's a mess, okay? It's a mess. But David says, okay, now we can work together. You delivered on your deal. I'm gonna trust you. So Abner then begins holding conferences with the elders of Israel. And he says to them, in time past you were seeking to have David be king over you. Now I find that interesting. Like when? I don't think it was any time while Saul was king because Saul was their king. So it probably was after Saul died, right? And some of the elders are obviously thinking, well, I guess it's time for David to be king. But you know what, what Abner did? He came in and said, no, not David. Ishbosheth, he's the son of Saul. Come on. So Abner's the one who said, You want David? No. Go with the son of Saul. Now, here, Abner would be completely reversing everything he ever said. Now he's saying, You wanted David to be king over you? I kind of said, Don't do it. Now let's do it. And then he quotes the word of the Lord. The Lord swore that through David he would deliver Israel from all its enemies. All of a sudden, this is up in Abner's mind now. He's quoting the word of the Lord. And you notice in verse 19, Abner specifically sits down with the tribe of Benjamin. 
and listens to their concerns because Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And you can imagine they might have difficulties with David being king. It's like, okay, so what's going to happen to us? Because we're all related to Saul. Are we going to be second-class citizens? Is he going to take out his frustration on us? So what's going to happen here? And he's listening. And then Abner takes all of these things that he's heard, conditions, problems, hesitations, and he takes them to David and says, they all want to hear what you have to say about this. And David comes back and says, okay, we're going to take care of this. It's going to be okay. Don't quite know what he said, but Abner was happy with that. And he says, you know what? This is it. We're going to go around and gather all Israel to my Lord the King. Do you hear that? He's saying, you are my king. And I'm going to organize everybody under you. We're going to do this. And you notice how peaceful this is. We're not talking war anymore. We're not talking about making anybody do anything they don't want to do. And David is listening to concerns, addressing those concerns, and he's dealing sincerely and honestly. And it's coming together peacefully. Isn't this fabulous? And just as everything is going great and smooth, Joab kills Abner. Can you imagine? Just as Abner goes away in peace, verse 22, at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he's gone away in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away, and he's already gone? Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. So there goes Abner and his men away in peace and Joab comes back with the guys and they've been on a raid somewhere to their enemies, bringing back a bunch of spoil and somebody tells Joab, you know, Abner was here. What? Yeah, and king's making deals with them and everything seems really good and Joab actually comes up to David and says, what are you doing? He's a spy. He's dangerous. You had him in your grasp. 
What are you thinking? And then he goes out and sends messengers to get him back. So Abner, he says, okay, messengers of David, no problem here. And there's Joab going, hey, Abner, got to talk to you for a sec. Come on over here for a sec. Yeah. Hey, look at this right here. And he kills him right on the spot. That's for Azahel, you scum. Fabulous. Now, you know, nobody knew that Joab had it in for Abner. David didn't know. Why would he let Joab just run around and do stuff? And Abner didn't know. But in Joab's heart is this thing of, he killed my brother, I, I'm going to kill him. And then he does it. So then David is furious and he's also weakened. Look at verse 28. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, my kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all his father's house and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai's brother killed Abner because he had killed their brother Azahel at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters, as a man falls before wicked men. So you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I'm weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So David declares his innocence. And he has to do this because it looks awful. Without any kind of explanation, it would just look like David sends the commander of his army to take out Abner. 
It's a hit job. And David can't fire Joab because he's his nephew. And he's too important in the government and he can't do anything to him. So he's stuck with this perception that looked like he just take care of Abner, sweep up the mess and move on. It wasn't like that. So he puts all this on Joab and he curses Joab. That's what it is. It's a curse. He says, may all of his family be unclean, sick, a bunch of namby-pambies who live in poverty and get killed in battle. Every single one of them. Because this death undermines everything that David was doing. Because he was called to shepherd God's people, not oppress them. To rule over the people in God's way, not his way. And he wants to rule in peace and in covenant love. And you can't do that while you're sending hit squads to take care of people you don't like. Everybody's going to think, am I next? Moab is looking really good. Maybe I'll move there. No hit squads in Moab. And this goes against God's principles. Vengeance belongs to God, not man. There should have been a trial. You know what's really outrageous is that Hebron was what was called a refuge city where somebody who accidentally killed someone could flee for refuge until there was a trial. And anyone who would be avenging their near relative's blood could not touch them until there was a trial. And there Abner was, right in the gate of Hebron, and Joab kills him. That's against the law of God. So there should have been justice, but no. Joab takes everything into his own hands. He hates, he judges, he executes his revenge, and he's satisfied. Got him. And he's the only guy who's happy. Can you imagine? The whole nation's in an uproar. David is furious. And you know, he says to Joab, you rip your clothes right now. And you mourn. I want to see you mourn. And he knows he's not mourning inside. He's going, <laughs> David can't touch me, and I got him. But he says, you better mourn right now this second. You're a bad actor. And here's David. He's king, but he's helpless. It's a weird situation. Abner is dead. Joab's alive, and he can't do anything about it. So here's what we're looking at here. We're looking at repentance and forgiveness. Before, Abner is doing his own thing 
and he's in total conflict with God. He ends up fighting against his own nation, his true King David, and what he did even cost him his own life. But then he changed his mind. He changed his allegiance. And that's repentance. You change your mind first. And it's this, you call it a watershed, a turning point. When you have this realization, I am wrong. I am wrong about what I thought was true. My own life. Doing my own thing is wrong. I am naturally opposing Jesus Christ, God's appointed ruler. When you come to that point, then you change your mind and you change your life. And you go God's way, just like Abner. You say, my Lord the King. But it doesn't stop with you. You go out and you take the entire nation and you bring them under the dominance of Jesus. I mean, seriously, that's our job. Our contacts are the people that we run into every day. I can't evangelize the entire nation, but I can pray for my neighbors, I can pray for the people I run into in the grocery stores, out on the street. These are my people. They have objections. Why would God take my husband? Got to work with those objections. Is God good or not? Well, that's what we do as we talk with people and say, you know what? God cares. He's grieving with you. He's not your enemy. So, the real test of repentance is you forgive everybody. Because if you have received forgiveness from God, you're obligated to forgive everybody who owes you. You're representing Jesus. Because Jesus lives in you, you've got that power to forgive anybody. Just like Jesus forgave those who were crucifying him. See, if you were on your own, that would be tough. All you could think of was, he killed my brother. But Jesus can forgive anybody. He has the power. And if Jesus lives in you, you can forgive anybody. And Jesus commands us to forgive for some very good reasons. Like bitterness and hatred are sins against God directly. If you're bitter at somebody right now, you are sinning against God right now. Say, well, I'm not mad at God. I'm mad at that person. But this is what God says in Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. 
You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You can't love the Lord your God and hate your neighbor. And when we don't forgive someone, then we are not representing Jesus right. We're more like Joab. And people look at Joab and saying, huh, David's got it in for people. That's not true. And if we don't forgive, then somebody could look at our lives and say, huh, Jesus has it in for me. There's no forgiveness here. There's no love. There's no mercy. <coughs> Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. But if we don't love, and if we don't forgive, nobody can see Jesus in our church. And you know, there are a lot of churches where love is not the main thing on display. Something else is the main thing. We move in power. Or we've got the best Bible teacher on the planet. Or something. But when love is not the main thing in a church, church turns out to be a complete drag. Like, why would I go to church? I have enough problems in my life already. Why do I need to add a bunch of people to my life that hate each other? So, Jesus links our forgiveness and everybody else's. He says, He taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So they're all put together. And the last reason is bitterness is so unpleasant. I don't know if you've ever been bitter at somebody for a long time. But I have been. And I found it so unpleasant. It's so soured life that when I figured out how to get out of it, I was happy. And the only way to get out of bitterness is to confess it as a sin against God. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the way to be cleansed of bitterness. And you actually get to forget about what happened because you forgive it and you don't have to relive it. And you, every time it comes up, you say, no, I forgive. It comes up, no, I forgive. 
I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. Take that. I forgive you. And then nobody can hurt you. Forgiveness is in your best interest because nobody can hurt you when you forgive them. And Jesus will deal with all those people who hurt you because everybody has to stand before him and he is going to make everything right. He will pay back to you what people did to you. And when he pays it back to you, it will be forever. It will be satisfaction that lasts forever. And when he deals with them, I don't know quite how that's going to work out, but nobody gets away with anything. So when we forgive, what we're doing is getting out of God's way and saying, you deal with them. That's in your best interest. And when you forgive, Jesus is going to take away the pain and the sourness and the He's going to take it away. Now, this morning we're having communion. And this is a perfect time to let go of all bitterness and anger and wrath and desire for revenge and she did that and he said that. Just let it go and forgive and watch what God does. You know what? He can work in families and he can sweeten up anything and we want to give him all the room he needs to do his work. And he will deal with everyone in our lives, one way or the other. And we can trust him to do this. And meanwhile, we can be happy. And living well is the best revenge. I didn't plan to say that, but it's true. If you just stay happy and free from bitterness, man, life is a gas. So, today we want to, just between you and God, confess your sins. Anger. Resentment. Bitterness. Just, man, drop it. Get rid of it. And... Let Jesus wash and cleanse and give you peace. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to remember our forgiveness. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for Jesus. Thank you for taking all of our bitterness, anger, resentment, hurt feelings, 
and putting them on him. Dealing with them once and for all. Thank you that we don't have to fret about ourselves and what's done to us. We trust you that you're going to work everything together for good because we love you and we are the called according to your purpose. So we even want to pray for those people who hurt us and maybe have no clue what they did. And we pray you would deal with them and help them to know Jesus and make them people after your own heart. Bless them by bringing them to Jesus. But for ourselves today, Lord, we don't want to fight you. We want to submit to you and let you take care of the things we can't fix. The people who've hurt us and all that stuff, man, you deal with it. Today, as we're worshiping, as we're taking communion, would you please wash our hearts? And may we enjoy that forgiveness that washing, that renewal. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.